Would you stand with me as we read from God's word this morning? <clears throat> from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Naaman, a general for the king of Aram, was a great man and highly regarded by his master because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. This man was a mighty warrior, but he had a skin disease. Now Aramean raiding parties had gone out and captured a young girl from the land of Israel. She served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master could come before the prophet who lives in Samaria. He would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the young girl from the land of Israel had said. Then Aram's king said, Go ahead, I will send a letter to Israel's king. So Naaman left. He took along ten kickers of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. He brought the letter to Israel's king. It read, Along with this letter, I am sending you to my servant Naaman. I am sending you my servant Naaman, so that you can cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he ripped his clothes. He said, What? Am I God to hand out death and life? But this king writes me, asking me to cure someone of his skin disease. You must realize that he wants to start a fight with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that Israel's king had ripped his clothes, he sent word to the king, Why did you rip your clothes? Let the man come to me. Then he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. Naaman arrived with his horses and chariots. He stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent out a messenger who said, Go and wash seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and become clean. But Naaman went away in anger. He said, I thought for sure that he'd come out, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the bad spot and cure the skin disease. Aren't the rivers in Damascus, the Abana and the Farpar better than all Israel's waters? Couldn't I wash in them and get clean? So he turned away and proceeded to leave in anger. Naaman's servants came up to him and spoke to him. Our father, if the prophet had told you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? All he said to you was wash and become clean. So Naaman went down and bathed in the Jordan seven times, just as the man of God had said. His skin was restored like that of a young boy, and he became clean. He returned to the man of God with all his attendants. He came and stood before Elisha, saying, Now I know for certain that there is no God anywhere on earth except in Israel. Please accept a gift from your servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, at this time, we're going to dismiss any kids if we have them in here with us. Um, you can head to the back there. We have Patsy. Um, if, if you want to go back there now um, and head off to kids hour, and uh, we'll keep on rolling here. All right, so. Sorry, that was a, a long passage. But an interesting story. Um, there's this card game that Kayla and I have. It's called Red Flags. And this game, before I get into what it is, I want to I preface by saying, I don't recommend this to everybody because there are some inappropriate cards that you have to filter through. Um, but this game, Red Flags, um, can be super fun and hilarious. Uh, the premise of this game is that you go around, you have your group of people playing, and one person each round is called the single. And so the single... You have to, everybody else is creating a date for this single. And you have, you have these different cards. You have perks and you have red flags. 
And so the perks are good things, and you, you kind of cater it to who the single is for that round. Um, you, you kind of know who they are, so you know what they like and what they would look for in a, um, a date. And you play two perks, two positive things. Um, so for example, I have some examples. Patient. This person is patient. And this person owns an island in the Bahamas. Ooh. Ooh, a patient person who owns an island in the Bahamas. Another example, they're a good listener. This person's a good listener, and their morning breath smells like fresh-baked cookies. <laughs> so everybody would go around, and they would play these perks, and they're trying to, trying to create the most attractive date for this single and so once all of these dates are created, then you go around the circle again, and you play a red flag on the date of the person to your left, trying to ruin that date for the person. So, example, this person that is patient, they own an island in the Bahamas, they literally have the face of a pug. <laughs> red flag. Or this other one, good listener, morning breath smells like fresh baked cookies, but... They describe all of their food as yummy yummers. So then the person, the single, has to go around and decide which of these dates is the most attractive to them. Which one would they want to go and have a long-term relationship with? Super fun, right? Kind of like apples to apples. So this description of Naaman in this passage kind of reminds me of this, of this game. Stay with me. So Naaman a general for the king of Aram. Ooh, okay, okay. A great man. Highly regarded by his king. And a mighty warrior. He gets four perks. That's how, that's how cool he is. But then red flag, he has a skin disease. A skin disease. In, in that time, um, a skin disease is not just a little rash that you can take antibiotics and be done with. A skin disease in those days meant this horrible and incurable disease that would result in a slow and painful death. It was a death sentence, essentially. So Naaman had a lot going for him, right? He has all these, all these perks. But then he has this kind of life ruiner of an attribute, so this, this might be a silly connection to make. But I think this illustrates the fact that both back then and now, the successes or noteworthy parts of life can be kind of erased or, or um, put in the background if there is this red flag, if there is this, this thing that defines you that is a life ruiner kind of a thing. Because no matter how impressive or successful Naaman's life has been, no matter how great of a guy he is, no matter um, what his accomplishments are, the successes and noteworthy parts of his life can be erased by this red flag. It's a devastating thing. The fact that he was a leper. He has leprosy. He has this skin disease. And so Naaman decides to do whatever it takes to be healed from this skin disease. He hears of this prophet in Samaria who could cure him. And so he goes and he tells his king. And his king says, go ahead, go, go to Samaria, do whatever it takes to be healed. Um, in fact, I'll send you a letter 
and you can take all, you take all of this wealth and clothing and all of these things um, that show off just how important you are, just how popular and mighty and powerful you are. And so he brings all of this before the king of Israel, Jehoram, who is terrified because this comes to him, this, this man with a skin disease comes before him with all of this pomp and circumstance, right? All of these things that make him look like he is an important person. And there's this note that he receives that says, please cure Naaman. Please cure this man. And he thinks this is, this is a death sentence, right? This man has leprosy. He has a skin disease. Who am I to cure him of this? He's terrified because he thinks that by failing to heal Naaman of this skin disease, then his failure will result in just another attack, another raid from this army on his people. And so he sends him along to this prophet, Elisha, that he, he thinks, if anybody can help him, this guy, this crazy guy can and Naaman comes before him once again, and he tries to show off all of this stuff that he has, all of this um, incredible person that he is, right? It says that he comes to the door of Elisha's house with horses and chariots. He's ready to be recognized as this great man that he is, and he believes himself to be. Because Naaman has a very prominent status among the Syrian people, he is highly regarded, and because of that, he largely has control over any situation that takes place in his life. And so let's put ourselves in the shoes of Naaman for a little bit, the sandals of Naaman, if you will. How would you, as a person of great power, of great influence, of great importance, how would you deal with this liability of leprosy? How would you handle this kind of shameful um, literal and figurative blemish on your otherwise spotless life and spotless record. I, I would say, I would argue that most of us would probably handle it in a similar way as to how Naaman does. We would attempt to take control of this situation, right? Because we have control over basically every other situation in our life. We would take control. We would claim that our accomplishments, that our attributes in some way qualify us. <coughs> Excuse me. Two separate times in this story, we read that Naaman's belief of, of this reputation that he has um, as a, an honorable and a well-respected man, a mighty warrior, he believes that this would make a difference in his healing. And how often in our lives do we fall into this trap where we believe that who we are what we do, what we have done, qualifies us for something. Good or bad, I suppose. But how, who we are, who we believe ourselves to be, what we have done in our lives, what we have, have done recently, that qualifies us for something, for some kind of reward. Because we've made certain decisions in life that in some way makes it okay for us to act in a certain way. Or because we, we know that we're a good person on the inside, it's okay for us to sometimes gossip or talk bad about somebody. Or maybe the family that we grew up in, 
the, the socioeconomic status that we have, um, the town that we live in or the part of town that we live in, some, some of this qualifies us for something. We, we deserve to make certain decisions based off of the life that we have lived, based off of who we are. We deserve to have our opinions heard. Whatever the exact case may be, I'm sure all of us have struggled or maybe are currently struggling with some of this, with this attitude of this is who I am, this is what I've done, and so I deserve blank. And this is the attitude that Naaman brought as he approached both the king of Israel and the prophet Elijah. Elisha, sorry. He's dressed to the nines in this, these ornate garments. He has all of this stuff parading around with his horses and his chariots. Because of who he was, because of what he has done, he's qualified to receive this healing. He deserves this healing. But when Naaman brings this attitude in front of Elisha, Elisha's not having it. Instead of coming out to greet Naaman and to perform some kind of ritual healing and to bless him, Elisha literally doesn't even see Naaman. He sends a messenger out instead. And the messenger gives him a very simple instruction, and that's that. There's no pomp, no circumstance, no chanting, no healing process that goes on. And Naaman is upset. He's the leader of this great army. He's well-respected. He's a great man. He's come all this way. And he hears this little word of instruction from who he perceives to be just a nobody. Right? It's, it's just a messenger of a prophet from another land. A nobody. He says, I thought for sure that Elisha would come out, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the bad spot, and cure the skin disease. Pause. These two words that he uses at the beginning of this can get us into a lot of trouble, right? The words, I thought. I thought you were going to pick the kids up today. I thought you were supposed to get this promotion. I thought I was supposed to get this promotion. I thought you were going to be there for me. I thought, I thought, I thought. There are plenty of I thoughts in our lives. And Naaman is angry with Elisha because he expected, he thought that Elisha would do these certain things for him. He thought Elisha would come out and see him. He thought Elisha would wave his hand over his leprosy. He thought that through Elijah, God would cure him. He thought, he thought, he thought. And these thoughts, these expectations that Naaman has, that we have in our own lives, can be dangerous. Because if those ideas, um, those thoughts of how things should go, don't happen, <coughs> sorry, my throat is really dry. <clears throat> if they don't happen, then what? We feel like the victim. We feel like we have been wronged in some way. We have these expectations of how things are going to go. They don't go that way. And we think, well, that's not right. That's not what I should get. That's not how I thought this was going to go. In this case, Naaman's expectations of how things would go 
did not happen. He feels as though he was wronged. Not because he was actually wronged, but because things didn't go his way. Although he didn't necessarily believe in or follow this God that Elisha followed, he did believe that by doing the right things and coming to the right person, that things would go his way, that things should go his way, and that good things should happen to him. Now, it's not bad to have expectations or thoughts of how things should go or how things should be, how things should work out. It's not bad to have those. But when things inevitably don't go the way that we planned, the things that we thought would happen don't happen, how do we respond? Do we respond as Naaman does and angrily say, I thought, I thought, I thought, I thought? Do we pout like Naaman does? They don't go his way, and all of a sudden his hope for healing is just destroyed. He, he walks away. He says, I thought it should go this way. It went a different way. I'm going home. I'm upset. And that is a common response for a lot of us. I know I've responded in that way several times. Things don't work out how I want them to, how I expect them to. I'm out. I'm done. We want to look at the problems in our day-to-day lives and say, I think this should happen this way, and this should happen this other way, and then those do happen that way. But that's not how life works all the time. Sometimes, maybe, but that's not how life works. At some level... Our expectations and our realities do not match up. And Naaman follows up this moping and pouting about his disappointment in Elisha's actions with complaints about the instruction that he's been given. He says, aren't the rivers in Damascus, the Abana and the Farpar, aren't, aren't they definitely better than Israel's waters? Couldn't I wash in them and get clean? So what is it about these rivers, these specific rivers that he mentions, that makes Naaman act as though those are better and more preferable than the instruction that he was given? Well, quick geography lesson here. I don't know if you can see that. So the two rivers that he mentions, the Farpar and the Abana, way up in the top right-hand corner up there by Damascus, That is fairly near where Naaman comes from. So, for starters, they are very near his home. It would be much closer to travel there than, as you can see, the Jordan River down more in the middle there. It would be a whole lot easier for him to get there in the first place, right? And not only would they have been much closer for him to to do this ritual, per se, Not only would they be closer, but they are in a lot of ways actually better than the Jordan River. Because the Jordan River was not known for its cleanliness. This is a picture, or at least an example of a picture. I've never been there, so I don't actually know for sure. Um, But this is a visual representation of what the Jordan River would look like. And if you look at that, you might think, I don't care that I have a skin disease because who knows what other diseases are in there. I'm not jumping in that. Thanks, but no thanks, Elisha. Um, The Jordan River is 
muddy and murky. And as we can see here, it, it doesn't look like a whole lot of the nice rivers that we have here in western Washington, especially, right? The nice clear rivers. This looks like a dirty drainage ditch. And nobody wants to go jump in that to be healed. Nobody necessarily believes that they would be healed by just going into that. And so Naaman says, why, are these, why, why aren't these other rivers the ones that you would want me to go bathe in? Why can't I dip myself in these other rivers? And in a lot of ways, he's right, because the rivers of Damascus, again, more just a, a visual representation, not the actual river, they look more like this. They, they come from... If you, hey, if you come... It comes from the mountains up there. You can kind of see a little bit of the topography um, in the upper right there. These, these rivers come from the mountains. They are a whole lot more clear waters. They flow from the mountains. It's more of the natural rainfall and runoff, and it provides this kind of cool and gushing perfection of water, if you will. So it makes total sense why he would prefer this over this. This over this, Right? Far superior. If leprosy was going to be removed, surely it would happen in this rather than the muddy Jordan River. It would have made a whole lot more sense to Naaman if I could just go real close to my home, jump in this nice, refreshing, cool, clean water, and my skin disease would be gone. Because Naaman has this kind of logical understanding of what the best way is, right? This looks like a much better way than this. And at many points throughout our daily lives, I know for a fact that we have likely had this same kind of thought process. There's this way to do it, and there's this way to do it. And logically, everything is pointing me to this way of doing things. Right? Everything is pointing me towards jumping in that water and being healed, rather than jumping in that dark, nasty water of the Jordan River. How many of you have never thought that your way was the best way? Liars! <laughs> Liar! We've all, we've all done that. We've all thought that our way is the best way, that our way is the most logical way, and that that's the way that it should be done. We are humans. We have an understanding of what way is best, of what way we think is best, and that dictates our thoughts, our actions, our decisions. So these three kind of ideas that we've looked at in this story of Naaman, they make sense to us as humans. Who we are or what we've done qualifies us for something, qualifies us for some kind of reward, some kind of right. Things should go our way. And our way is the best way. We know the best way. I guarantee you that we have all lived out these ideas, I would say at some point over this last week. All three of these ideas we have lived out in some way. If not in this last week, you're better than I am, maybe this last month. But I think that you all know that I'm going to say that these three ideas are not the ways to live our lives. I, I'm not going to close the sermon down right now and say, that's it, that's it. Head off and keep doing that. Good job. Because these 
these kinds of ideas, these ways of living are not how God operates. They make sense to us on some kind of human level, but it's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is not concerned at all about the great attributes of your life, the great accomplishments of your life. The way of Jesus is not concerned with your thoughts or your expectations about how things should go. The way of Jesus is not concerned with how highly you think of yourself, with the best way that you think. The way of Jesus is totally upside down, totally backwards of what the way of us is, what the way of the world is. The ways that we commonly think or act or behave are opposite of what the kingdom of God calls us to, the way of Jesus calls us to. Because the way of Jesus is simple and humble. And we see that played out in this story. It's easy for us to focus our attention on Naaman, and and that's not a bad thing to do, Um, but to focus on his missteps, his attitudes about things, and the eventual healing and, and reconciliation that God brings to his life, the salvation that God brings to his life. It's easy to focus on that, and that is a good thing. There are plenty of lessons that we can draw from that, and many preachers who are not me focus on that, and that is fantastic. But I want to challenge us a little bit, because I felt challenged as I read this passage and, and spent time planning and preparing for this morning I felt challenged because if the way of Jesus is simple and humble, where is that revealed in this story? It's very minimally revealed at the end of Naaman's story, the simple and humble part. But in a story that is so obviously revolving around this man who thinks so highly of himself, who is in such high respect and high regard amongst the people, this man of great power and great wealth and great influence, notoriety, where do these simple and humble signs of Jesus show up? Perhaps the most powerful place that I see it show up is right at the beginning of our passage this morning. And the young girl that has been captured from the land of Israel. I'm going to read a couple verses here again. Now Aramean raiding parties had gone out and captured a young girl from the land of Israel. She served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master could come before the prophet who lives in Samaria. He would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the young girl from the land of Israel had said. So this young girl has been taken into captivity by this people group, by the Aramean raiding parties. And she has been assigned to serve Naaman's wife, the the general of this army. She comes from the same people group whom Naaman is helping to oppress. And yet, the journey to salvation for this great and mighty man begins with words from an enslaved young Israelite girl. She is the first person to speak in this story, which is remarkable in and of itself, but that she speaks at all is pretty extraordinary. Her words aren't resentful or hateful, saying, why did you bring me into captivity? Why did you put me here? 
Whew, excuse me. This slave girl, she's no longer in control of her life, of her freedom. And yet she uses her words to speak hope into the man that is enslaving her. She sees this need that he has. She sees that he has this skin disease, or at least hears that he has this skin disease. And she offers what she can to help. She speaks up. She informs her mistress that the prophet who lives in Samaria could cure Naaman's leprosy. And so from here begins a rather improbable chain of events, chain of people who listen to this young slave girl, the lowly, the simple, the humble. Her mistress, Naaman's wife, listens to her. And she then amplifies that voice to her husband, bringing his attention to this prophet who lives in Samaria. And not only that, but then Naaman listens to her. He listens to the voice of his wife and also then in connection, the voice of this young slave girl. And he takes those words and takes them to the king himself. And not only does he take them to the king, the king also listens. And so this chain of communication here, the, this slave girl who is being oppressed speaks these words of hope and healing to the person oppressing her, and it goes all the way up the food chain to the king himself. Now, there is a vast separation in kind of the, the social power that be, standing between this young slave girl and this king. But as is the typical way of Jesus, the Spirit works in and through very unexpected people, the lowly, the humble, the simple, to provide this road to salvation. Our first picture of the simple and the humble way of God does not come when Naaman shows up on Elisha's doorstep. But it comes when the words of this young slave girl show up on Naaman's doorstep. It's here where he listens to the lowly that are around him, the simple, the humble that are around him, his wife and his wife's servant. And he doesn't just listen, but he honors those voices, takes them to be truth, to be hope. The simple and the humble way of Jesus is made known in this story through the lowly slave girl who uses her voice to point Naaman to the Lord. Later in our story, the differences between God's way of thinking and our ways of thinking are illuminated even more than, than that. As we talked about earlier, Naaman, with all of his horses and his chariots, goes to the prophet, and Elisha doesn't even bother to see him face to face. He sends this message through his servant, go and wash seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and become clean. In his complaining about these unmet expectations, he says, aren't the rivers in Damascus, the Abana and the Farpar, better than all Israel's waters? Couldn't I wash in them and get clean? And then he storms off in a rage. But Naaman's servants, some more lowly and otherwise overlooked people, they caution him and they counsel him. They say that our father, <clears throat> if the prophet had told you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? 
All he said to you was wash and become clean. And I tell you what, thank God for people that speak truth over our lives. Naaman was obviously angry, obviously at a different level in the social ladder than his servants, right? They're his servants. And yet, his servants are bold enough to stand up and to give him the advice that he needed to hear. And their advice was fairly simple and logical. If Elisha had asked Naaman to do any number of things that were far more difficult, to sacrifice hundreds of animals, he would have done it. Because this is a life or death situation, right? This is a this is a death sentence to him, this skin disease. And so in order to heal that skin disease, he would do any number of things. But because the request of Elisha's messenger, Elisha, God, because that request was so simple and humble, Naaman refuses. He thinks, what? Why? No. But why is this such a simple and humble act to dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River? Well, looking back on what we talked about earlier, what we saw earlier, Jordan River is far away from his home. It's very dirty. It doesn't measure up to his standards. Essentially, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to stoop to that level. Dipping himself in the Jordan River would require him to set aside these perceived notions about who he was, what he had done with his life, what he deserved, the reputation that he had. It would require him to lower himself to a certain standard that he was not ready to lower himself to. Because this man was mighty. He was powerful. He was respected. And he was not about to enter these disease-infested waters just for the hope of healing his current disease. The instructions that Elisha gave him were simple. They were straightforward. They were uncomplicated. But they required Naaman to set aside these thoughts that he had about himself, where he found his value and his worth. He had to set those aside in order to choose God's way. The simple and humble act of dipping himself seven times into the Jordan River symbolized this simple and humble way of God. And this account of the healing of Naaman's leprosy, it showcases this unexpected nature of God's mercy and God's grace. It works in unexpected ways through unexpected people to bring life and to bring healing where hope has been lost. Naaman's encounter with this unexpected way of God's grace and mercy led him to faith. In verse 15, the last verse we read, it says, He returned to the man of God with all his attendants. He brings all of his people with him. He came and he stood before Elisha. (coughs) And he says, Now I know for certain that there is no God anywhere on earth except in Israel. Please accept a gift from your servant. The way of Jesus is not to think highly of ourselves. The way of Jesus is not to try and do it on our own, 
because we think we can handle it, because we think we know best. The way of Jesus does not take great effort on our part. Healing came to Naaman when he took the simple and the humble route, when he realized that he could no longer dictate the success of his life. He could no longer dictate how he would get through hardships. He no longer had this control over the decisions of his life because he had this life-ruining disease. When he took that simple and humble route of faith, though, is when he was healed. Because the way of Jesus is simple and it is humble. The way of Jesus calls us to lay down all of the spinning plates that we ourselves cannot hope to keep up. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are struggling and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I am gentle and I am humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear, my burden is light. As I invite the worship team back up, I want to remind you all that these altars are, are open at any point. Um, it's, there's nothing necessarily special about what happens at these altars, but they are an incredible way to symbolically lay down all that we are, all that we think we are, all that we think we have done to lay it down at the feet of God, to say, God, I am done living like this. I am done thinking that who I am or what I've done qualifies me for some kind of reward or right. I'm done thinking that my way is best and I am done with being exhausted trying to do it. So as we sing this last song, you may or may not know it. Um, We've done it just one other time before. Um, But I want us to hear the words more than we try to nail the notes, okay? I want us to focus on the words. The song is called Simple Kingdom. And the words speak to this idea that the way of Jesus is simple and humble. It's not who or what is best. It's not who knows best what we want, or even what makes sense at all to us. The way of Jesus is simple. The kingdom of God is simple and humble. So let's listen to these words. Let's worship the God who goes about his business in simple and humble ways through simple and humble people. (laughs) 